Hello, and welcome to PSA Today, number 27. It is Wednesday, December 16th. I am here with my co-host, Kalia Young, who's taking some kind of tincture for something. Um, PSA Today stands for Privacy, Surveillance, and Anonymity. And um, we're coming um, to the end of a pretty interesting year. When we when we when we when we decided to do this podcast, there we were not in lockdown. We were we were chit chatting at Node in San Francisco. I remember it was a time when we met in person. We had it all planned out. (laughs) Little did we know. Little did we know COVID was coming. Yeah. So speaking of COVID, you have some new news. I do have some new news. Um, it was just announced this morning that um, the an initiative that I've been volunteering with since um, really early on in the pandemic, the, the COVID-19 Credentials Initiative, which is really connecting um, entrepreneurs and different stakeholders looking at how to apply verifiable credentials to the crisis that we're in. That group um, finally found a legal home because the internet's a beautiful place. You can get a whole group of people together and start doing all sorts of things and still not really exist. So we were mailing lists and a website and Google Docs and working groups, and we didn't have a legal home. So we finally found a legal home. We're going to be with the Linux Foundation Public Health, which is a, one of the many 200 different projects under the Linux Foundation. And this one has, um, up until now, been really focused on how um, the contact tracing apps and the open sourcing of them and coordinating the technical communities building those tools. And so the COVID Credentials Initiative is joining that group. It's a really good home. It's synergistic with our work um, and hopefully will help us connect more with public health officials and, and, and exploring also how digital vaccination records can work. And I'm the ecosystems director. The three three of us are joining as part-time staff to help move that initiative forward. So that's really exciting. So COVID credentials, what does that look like next year? That's a great question. So we've met, there's been over 30 different projects that have presented working prototypes and, and um, some of them are actually deployed where folks can get verifiable credentials um, right now around testing results and share them with other parties who might care. So there's an example in Southern California where they're working with a movie set or more than one movie set. So you can go get your test from your doctor, have the verifiable credential presented at movie set one that you work on on one day and movie set two that you work on the next day probably day three, go back and get another test, right? It's about ongoing testing and sharing those results with, um, you know, folks. And it's, you know, this means that the movie set and the doctor aren't talking. The credential is in the hands of the patient who is able to share it with whoever they think is a relevant party to know that information. And, you know, it seems like a, a good way to support some workplaces opening up more safely, um, obviously, you could still get COVID on your way to work, but it's risk reducing, right? This is all about risk reduction. And so that's one use case that that is out there. And then potentially also working with airlines where airlines are like open to people flying, but they would really like people to be tested in the 24 to 48 hours before they fly. How does the airline get that information? Do you really want the airline talking to your healthcare records? No, you want to sort of be the courier of that information using a verifiable credential. And then potentially farther out looking at how um, people could carry digital vaccination records with them and share them with relevant parties. And, you know, some have expressed very serious concerns about this. Um, I think, as somebody said on Twitter, obviously they haven't traveled to places where you're required to get a vaccination and present that information before you cross the border. So in South America and in Africa, you have to have a yellow fever vaccination before you can travel to certain countries. And it's been an established public health norm for literally decades. 
So unfortunately, we've had this pandemic, which means this may become a norm for all of us to travel lots of places on, um, especially on airplanes and crossing borders that um, that you need to have this. So, you know, I, I, there's a lot of concerns, um, rightly so. Will it be an app? Um. So verifiable credentials are an op- a data format, right? And there's a whole bunch of different apps that um, there's a whole different bunch of different apps that use it, and that will support it. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's going to be like the super basic, like the you know starter wallet where people get it and it just holds this one credential. And then in time, there'll be more verifiable credentials for other things. Um, well, that's exciting. Yeah. And then last week, you were um, tuned into my data. I was at my data. Yeah, and it what, was what's the report from the uh, for the front line there. So I was asked to, um, I ended up speaking three times in three days. Um, so I was really focused on those sessions. I, I was invited to give the opening um, to, to be one of the two presenters in the first plenary that they had, um, sort of responding to the gentleman from India presenting about the new data empowerment and DP, DEPA data empowerment and protection architecture for consent management for moving financial records around. So it's really interesting. Um, and it's, you know, at the same time concerning many of the industries, many of the industries and uh, many of the industry bodies in India are self-regulating. So if the whole thing's just regulated by industry, um, then that's a problem. It could be. Um, I did a session as well on um, the history of identity. Mm-hmm. So how did we get to now? And it included um, an indigenous indigenous data perspective um, with the work of, actually, we should invite Kay Marie on the show so she can share what she's doing with um, her community, the Maori community, in terms of representing their traditional ways of expressing identity using our new technologies. And it was great. And then the last session I was in was focused on self-sovereign agents. Like, how do we get this so it's really usable for normal people and they don't have to worry about any of the technical weeds, it just works. And who are some of the other interesting people that showed up? I mean, new perspectives you hadn't heard before? Yeah. I mean, the um, I was sad because it seemed like so many people were from Europe and not enough people from all around the world. And I was like, maybe they misread the market and priced their conference too high. So that was, that was sad to me. Um, I think that there's a lot of conversations going on about what okay business models are or not. Can you sell data? This tension around the um, these data unions and sort of data rights around collections of data relative to AI systems, which I hadn't really thought about as what was really going on. So so the concern is if we all just pull our own data back into our personal data stores, that then the AIs have no data to go and do their thing with, and then we're going to be behind China. And I was like, oh, hadn't, it's sort of like geopolitics and data and computers all mixed together in a kind of really complicated soup that's hard to think about clearly, but maybe we should have some folks on the show in the new year to help us understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, and the my data operators continue to get cert. No, they're not certified. They're getting their self. They're raising their hands and saying, "My, I'm a my data operator." Answering a bunch of questions, and their peers are saying, "Yes, you probably are." 
so that's great to see. Does there seem to be any overlap with Silicon Valley? Or does it seem like it's kind of happening in, in parallel, in a vacuum? It feels, I mean, there's some crossover people, like um, like the DigiMe stuff led by mm-hmm. Julian Ranger, kind of, he visits Silicon Valley. I, he's actually one of the last people I met face-to-face in January. He was here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been interesting to sort of watch the absence of Silicon Valley in that community. But it's been great to see. It's almost like the European – like it's it's really focused on – a lot of it is European-based startups trying to shift the paradigm and that's exciting to see if they can get funding and support within the European context. Yeah, it sort of seems like a um, extension or sort of a private market extension of GDPR. On some, you know, the, the, the momentum that GDPR has had in the last couple of years in Europe seems to have given birth or given energy to um, a lot of this. Um, but it doesn't seem like it's carried over to the States um, as right. much. Um, yes, there's been, you know, CCPA and, and Proposition 24, um, but, you know, surveillance capitalism seems alive and well coming out of Silicon Valley. And it doesn't, there's no real pressure to change. I mean, the, the, the Facebooks and Apples of the world are kind of, you know, having turf wars. They with. are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In fact, we saw that this morning, right? The um, Or maybe it was yesterday, but it's sort of circulating today. Um that Facebook came out with a full page ad attacking Apple for its privacy stances. That's the the pot calling the kettle black. I guess so. I mean, they're apparently in the new version of the operating system, they're turning off their ad sort of their IDF. What is it called? Right. Yeah. The IDFA, the, um, the ad sort of, you know, basically they're, they're, you know, they're a lot of the targeting, a lot of the, you know, the sort of um, device cookies um, they're trying to reconfigure against the wishes of the Internet Advertising Bureau and others. And it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of turf war. I think, um, you know, Apple has been trying to claim the, um, the ring of, of privacy. Um, and I think they've more than established it in the the mass market mind. Um, I think part of that has been, um, you know, part of that has been intentional over the years. Part of that's just been, I think, a failure of their abilities to create ad networks and social networks. And so, Mm. um, you know... Apple's failure to do that. Apple's failure, right. You know, sort Mm -hmm. of turn a bug into a feature. Um, And so they can claim that they've never sold your data because, frankly, they've they've never been good at it. Right. right. And they don't have, you know, and they, they you know, they, they don't have an ad network because they never really could pull it off. Right. Um, and um, as it relates to, you know, social networking and, and, and the, the feed um, and all that went with it um, that led, you know, Facebook to where it is, um, Apple never got there. So it's convenient for them to, um, you know, to shake the cage around this. And meanwhile, Facebook has to do something. Um, it's kind of curious that, um, you know, they're going to hide behind the needs of small businesses in terms of ad targeting. Yeah. Um, we'll see how it plays out. Um, but I think Facebook um, has had a pretty um, uh, tin ear when it comes to um, what people think about them as it relates to privacy and and data protection. So... We shall see. I think Google's happy to kind of be a bystander watching this. <laughs> well, I mean, they did get all pulled up in front of Congress, right? So, um, but I think it's the fact that we have to have an ad ecosystem based on stalking people and stalking their devices with persistent identifiers feels to me like the problem. Like, Let's figure out how small businesses can meet the like can connect with their potential consumers in ways that don't involve big data stocking by giant corporations. Like this, this feels like a solvable problem, but not if 
we decide it isn't. True. So I want to jump to uh, uh, this fun site um, that popped up from uh, Mischief, which is kind of um, uh, internet kind of product studio rebel rousers in New York that are always coming up with new products and new drops. And in this week's uh, that rose pretty high on uh, product hunt is called datalotto.biz. That's D-A-T-A-L-O-T-T-O.biz. And I'll read the manifesto because I think it, it, it cuts to uh, what we've been talking about. Um, and if you, so if you go there, um, it's uh Give us your personal information. We sell it to advertisers. One person wins all the money. The estimated prize pool right now is forty five hundred dollars. Four, you know, four five nine nine. So almost four, almost five thousand dollars. Five hundred thousand people have entered their data, and they ask for your name, your phone number, your email, and it says we are going to sell your data. And you you hit submit, and it says sell my data, baby. And if you want to buy some data, you click here and you, you send them an email. The manifest in, so in terms of how it works, we collect your user data, name, email, phone number, the basics. Once we have thousands of people's information, this starts to become an asset we can sell to advertisers. After one week, we sell everyone's data for as much money as we can. Then one lucky person from the database gets all the profits. Why do you sell, who do you sell your, your data to? The highest bidder or multiple since it's non-exclusive. We're going to juice this baby for all it's worth. Odds are we'll be selling to advertisers who want to target you with ads, but we'll accept any buyer's offer as long as it's high enough. Is this safe? LMAO. Not if you care about staying off advertisers' lists, but realistically, you're at least this exposed already, so it's probably fine. Um, And then the manifesto, which kind of gets to our conversation about Facebook and Apple, um, The ad tech industrial complex drools over your personal data, tracking you constantly and selling the information to advertisers who lap it up in the hopes of serving you ads so compelling you're all but forced to purchase. Data collection feels dangerous and scary, but we love dangerous and scary. It's a roller coaster appeal. Given the opportunity, would you gamble data for profit? In this case, you've got nothing to lose. Everything you do online has already been bought and sold by someone else. And so far, everyone is profiting except you. Selling data is a way of making money from nothing. Data is generated by activities you would be doing anyway. The data market is an engine for passive monetary generation. The only catch is it's hard for an individual to leverage. Data Lotto offers the support of the crowd. If money from nothing sounds too good to be true, your instincts aren't wrong. Data is a bubble. And the hype around hyper-targeting ads is itself false advertising. The numbers are all inflated by platforms that have obvious skin in the game and can't be neutral, prescribing a placebo panacea to treat an imaginary illness while skimming off the top. The lion's share of ad dollars goes straight to the ad tech industry itself. Actual advertisers, ironically, aren't even the main beneficiaries. For example, eBay turned off hundreds of millions of dollars in Google ad spend and found no change to their site traffic. The New York Times disallowed micro-targeted ads on their website and found no change in their conversions. Across the pond, Dutch broadcaster NPO did the same, same same result. The idea of the omnipotent targeted ad as an irresistible, psychologically manipulative force is simply false. But that doesn't stop ad tech from raking it in hand over fist. So ask yourself, what's more fun in a bubble? To run about, scream, and shout? or to strike while the iron is hot and cash in. So to me, it's a perfect American, late stage, cynical, millennial, kind of post-capitalist response to all this. um, That's ironic to see at the same time that you have the My Data conference that is super super earnest and super principled and so thorough and so thoughtful and so academic and so principled. Um, but not nearly as fun yeah. and not nearly as, um, as engaging. And so this is kind of where we are, where, um, you know, we're in a hullabaloo about all the surveillance capitalism and targeted advertising and Facebook, you know, worrying these small businesses about losing the ability to target, you know, their customers 
as if they're not able to target their customers with all these um, personal data um, opportunities, they're going to lose out on their business. Um, when the fact is, we don't even know if it works. Right. Yeah. Right? Um, well, I mean, when I saw this, I was like, oh, it's like the yes men. Mm-hmm. Who are the, the yes, yes men? men were these guys who infiltrated the like the elites of global finance. So like the World Economic Forum and like the G, you know, they they so they dressed up in suits and they they convinced them they were real and they would go in and give these outrageous presentations and people believed them. So they were like pranksters in that that world. So this is like a virtual version of that trying to like um express this Gen X millennial. So yes, men was Gen X and this is, you know, the next generation of doing that in the digital world. So it's, it's a fun site. Our listeners should definitely go and it's very neon. Um, so I read a, a book um, a couple weeks ago called the subprime attention crisis. Ooh. Uh, by Tim Tim Huang, and it is uh, subtitled "Advertising and the Time Bomb at the Heart of the Internet," and um, it, it kind of it, it it makes the analogy to the mortgage crisis um, of you know two thousand eight, um, which I had a pretty good look at because at the time um, I was starting Attention Trust, you know, with Steve Gilmore, so I was very focused on. Um, this notion of uh, the attention mm-hmm. economy, um, and um, I guess it was you know Michael Goldhaber in in Berkeley probably has done the most to kind of push that forward and and wrote a lot about it. Um, and then you know in the case of of mortgages and mortgage backed securities, the issue was that um, you know the, the rating agencies were um, rating. Um, you know, giving high ratings of of mortgages to people that really had no ability right. to pay, right? And so it created all this, you know, um, inflation, as it were, um, and it all came tumbling down, um, and everybody was in in cahoots, and everyone was conflicted. And so now, when we think about um, surveillance capitalism and ad technology and just online advertising in general, um, you know, I think what the what the book does is start to talk about um, how in reality, um, we're distracted and there's no way we're actually paying attention to all these ads. Right. And that one impression is not worth the same as another. And in terms of um, ad blockers, in terms of click fraud, it's just, and just people tuning out ads, right. that there's a sort of a, a whole, you know, there's billions and billions and billions of dollars that are sort of built up under the premise that people are paying attention um, and more attention to these hyper-targeted ads and that all attention is, you know, that's, that attention is is valuable and there's an ability to control it when in reality um, it's broken and um, it's bankrupt and it's all going to come tumbling yeah. down at some point. I, I often right? think yeah. about sort of the small town or even just, lo- I live in a big city, I've never lived, like the, the local newspapers and how I used to open up the East Bay Express and I would get the latest news, but I'd also see all these ads from local businesses that were interesting to me. And I've often thought like, could we, um, could we rethink how we're doing ads in a way that aligns with the groups and like groups and communities that we're connected to? So if I'm on the Berkeley bicycle coalition page in my social network, the local bike shop and the local bakery and the local grocery store are all relevant to the membership. And the membership actually might want to know about those services that are relevant to them, which is, you know, like there was a synergistic give and take between the market making of the local local rooted newspaper and and the people in it. And the businesses, right? There is a needed market making function for small businesses, but can it be aligned in a values based way? Which is like, oh, the folks in the bike group probably want to know about the bike shop, 
and it doesn't feel like we're enabling stalking. So can we have a, a way that groups can moderate what ads are actually relevant and available to their members? And we're targeting people in groups just like we used to, as opposed to putting beacons on individual people and building up super profiles of people. That's, to me, that's where the disconnect, not that all advertising ever is bad. Because I would like my local businesses to find local patrons who will find their services and goods valuable. Yeah. I mean, I think there are models like Craigslist or Airbnb that I think feel legitimate. They're marketplaces, yeah. you know, the supply and yeah. demand. And um, I think, you know, we're on a we're on some very thin ice when it comes to attention brokering and attention brokerage and just our cognitive ability to process um, all of these ads and all of these messages and you know what's a click worth and what's an ad impression worth um, uh, when we're all so promiscuous with our data um, and we are you know worth less and less as individual consumers because we're in an economic crisis. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of this attention that we're giving is, is fake. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not real. Um, and a lot of the attention that's being recorded is being sort of double counted and triple counted um, because we're being triggered and, and, and kind of persuaded and seduced by all these screens to keep scrolling, right. Right? to give all of our information. And um, it's just creating, and so it is creating some kind of bubble. Um, and yet these companies are, are getting, are becoming worth more and more because we are spending more and more of our time uh, attached to Instagram and attached to Google searching and attached to these, um, these advertising based platforms. So something's got to give. Um, and, uh, you know, so when we see things like data lotto, it's sort of like, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of like an anarchist throwing a bomb at surveillance capitalism to some right. extent. Uh, and so that's fun. And I hope there'll be more of that. Yeah. I've just been, so the, what comes up for me is actually where, where the web and the internet, and the world may be going next, which is actually with, you know, Apple is apparently coming out with a set of glasses. So it, apparently Facebook and Google are also working on glasses and Microsoft has HoloLens and whatever the next generation is after that. And then what happens, like if we think our phones and the tracking is too much now, what happens when they're literally watching our eyeballs and recording all the data of where we look and that they know everything we've seen? What are our rights in that world around managing the data generated as these systems are uh, connected to our bodies and watching our watching, literally watching our attention in an even more detailed, fine-grained way. Um, I don't know if I can answer that, <laughs> but I, I, I want to read, um, I want to read Apple's uh, new, uh, if you go to apple.com slash privacy, uh -huh. it says it's a new privacy, I mean a privacy policy, but it's their, their privacy foundation. It says privacy. Privacy is a fundamental human right. At Apple, it's also one of our core values. Your devices are important to so many parts of your life. What you share from those experiences and who you share it with should be up to you. We design Apple products to protect your privacy and give you control over your information. It's not always easy, but that's the kind of innovation we believe in. And then they go through, you know, Safari throws off trackers and Maps make your, makes your location history history and photos protect your images from unwanted exposure. Um, messages are only seen by those you send them, send them to. 
Um, Siri learns what you need, not who you are. Um, you know, it, it's laudable, you know, on, on some on some level. Um, uh, I, I like this, you know, so what, what does it mean that privacy is a fundamental human right? Um, and as we move into 2021, um, and we have the experience now somewhat behind us of Trump's, um, you know, four years um, and of sort of the rise of, um, you know, a new kind of uh, fascism and, and, and what happened with, you know, what happened this year with MPS and Khashoggi and hacking, you know, um, Jeff Bezos and, um, uh, and COVID and contact tracing um, and Black Lives Matter. I mean, you know, privacy um, punctured, you know, the, the issues around privacy punctured through all this. And my own personal journey is trying to build a private right. company, right? Trying to make it work as a business. And it's hard, yeah. you know, and, and, it, and as, as late as it feels for me, because so much damage has happened from an investment perspective, it's still really early. Yeah. Right. And the feedback I get is um, not only, you know, if, if, if initially it's, you know, consumers don't care and if they do care, they won't pay for it. Right. Um, because we've been trained to, you know, sacrifice personal information for convenience. Right. Um, and then and at the same time, we are, you know, our data is all over the place. So why even bother? Yeah. Um, and we are increasingly addicted to our screens. Um, and these algorithms are are programming us. We're no longer programming them, and we're constantly checking, um, you know, checking our alerts, checking our notifications, checking our our likes, and and in all of those persuasive technologies that have kind of come to roost. Yeah. Well, I, I think that. One of the optimistic bright spots is the emergence of the relational capacity of the tech that my community has been building. So can when instead of sort of like right now, the way that if I bought a product and I wanted to have a connection with the manufacturer, I would like fill out a warranty form and send it back in the, in the mail or maybe on the, on the web. Then they might have my f- email and my phone number and some PII, but like, what are they going to do with it? Within the emerging SSI technology is I, if I chose to, I could actually make a direct secure connection with the manufacturers of the products that I buy and have a a channel for them to connect with me and vice versa. That is a really different kind of structure than sort of being poked at by email. And that has a lot of interesting promise in terms of how to change these dynamics um, that we have with, with how we share and connect. Because I think we... You know, if COVID's showing us anything, we're wired for human connection and connection to other people. And a lot of us are stuck at home. I, I know I was driving this week and I was like, I just miss people. Like, I want to be in a group of humans. Um, and we just aren't going to get to do that for a while. But how do we have relationality be underlying our commerce as well. Like, I just think that, um, how do we, I, I just got, um, I haven't read it yet. Maybe that'll be my book report for the beginning of the year. The Future of Stuff by Vinay Gupta. It's this new little book out. Um, uh, and at the back says, in the future, we will be able to express our moral sentiments and other personal preferences to machine, which will provi- pro- provably act on our behalf and not on the behalf of others. And those machines will intelligently do things such as present us from being offered goods made by slave labor or containing materials from areas that have active resource wars. So... Here's my book. Here's what I've been. I'm starting to read. It's uh, it's called "Lurking: How a Person Became a User" Ooh. by um, 
by uh, incredibly well-written Joanne McNeil. Um, and um, in a shockingly short time, the internet has bound people around the world together, torn us apart, and changed not just the way we communicate, but also who we are and who we can be. It's created a new, wholly unique cultural space in which we all exist, even if we don't participate and in which we're constantly, continually surprised, betrayed, and rich befuddled. We've churned through platforms and technologies and in turn been churned by them, and yet the internet is us and always has been. And lurking, um, and lurking is such an interesting term as it you know, kind of relates to what we've been talking about, um, digs deep to identify the primary concerns of people online, searching, safety, privacy, identity, community, anonymity, oh, hits all three, and visibility. We should have her on the show. Uh, she charts what it is that brought people online and what keeps us there, even as the social equations of digital life, what we, what we trade knowingly or otherwise to reap the benefits of the internet, shift radically beneath us. It's a history we're accustomed to hearing as tales of entrepreneurs, visionaries, and dynamic and powerful corporations. But here is a more profound, intimate story, a personal history of the internet for the first time from the point of view of the user. Um, that sounds great. It reminds so, me of that the man who was a blogger in Iran and got put in prison for eight years and then come out came out and was like, "Where was where did the blogosphere go? Like what happened?" And we, you know, we were in it, so we didn't see it changing as as dramatically as he did from being away from it. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's definitely this, seems like there's a moment coming, I would say, in six to nine months where we're going to have, you know, we have a vaccine, um, the, the infections will start to go down, people will come out, and then there's going to be, it feels like some kind of like fork where there's going to be... Um, number of companies and institutions that have that are fully equipped to be remote and are optimized around a kind of remote efficiency um and then there are um you know and there are all these feeder programs into that so the y combinators are creating companies that get sold to other companies or go public and become remote or the um, Lambda School teaching programmers, or you know, on deck. Um, I'm starting to track these different next generation um, uh, kind of entrepreneurship programs and computer programming programs. But it feels like it's it's moving into um, this world of of using technology to enable people to work remotely um, and to collaborate remotely. But your day-to-day -day life is essentially working from home or working from some location. Um, and the technology aids and abets yeah. that. And then, and then there's going to be this other sort of other side of the brain or sort of bacchanalian response where people are going to glom together right. physically. Yeah. And they're going to be, you know, they're going to want to be in kind of like a, um, a sweaty factory, right? Which we can't imagine now because it just, it, it, we break out in hives and where's our mask and where's our, P, you know, PPE and or all that raves. stuff. Um, like, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you know, clearly there'll be parties and all that, but I mean, it's like day to day, right. you know, these people that have, you know, that are working from home or creating from home and they've taken all these skills and once the lights turn green, they're going to want to be right. together. Right. And so I'm really interested in technologies that enable are going to enable that kind of professional intimacy. Right. And by intimacy, I don't mean um, plugins to Slack so that you can make cuter emojis. Oh God, help us. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I mean like, like real fucking like, like, like people around right. a table, you know, like eating food together, smelling things yeah. together, like building things together, um, creating things together, 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 physically, um, where there's a premium on physical space. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and what does that look like? And what are the technologies that are going to enable that um, depth and intensity of physical collaboration? Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, my, you know, I grew up as a child actor, like I was in theater, like that was oh, my fun. thing. And so up until 1994, 1993, like that was all, you know, so up until my early 20s, it was all about experimental theater and avant-garde theater. And I studied it in college. And, I, and my first job was working for Robert Wilson, who was an avant-garde theater director. Um, and so my frame of reference was, you know, Grotowski, you know, in the Warsaw Theater Group and um, um, Richard Foreman and, you know, Bread and Puppet Theater and the Worcester Group where Willem Dafoe came out of. Um, and it, and, I felt that on, on some level, you know, technology and the internet was sort of an escape from that because that physicality didn't scale. Right. Right. That, that you could never reach enough people to make it work. And, you know, obviously film, you know, ha- had some scale opportunities because it's, you know, broadcast, et cetera. Um, and now I'm thinking like, okay, well, what if 25 years later, after all this internet, um, we come back to these sort of, um, kind of shamanic, yeah. you know, experiential, um, physical workshops, and how do we bring all the technology to enable us to connect more deeply as as people? What does that look like, and how do we create um, viable economic systems? Okay, my friend, my friend there, who is now a media, a professor of media, I don't know studies, I guess, um, has. Um, been putting on a series of workshops. So he had this saying, analog is the new digital. Like, just like you were describing, like digital was the new thing. Now that we've had two generations and starting on the third generation of, of, of young people growing up as digital natives, that there really is a craving for the analog experience and that that will be something that is at a premium and new and valuable. Yeah. And I think we, we, we see it, you know, that the, there's, there's a concomitant rise of coaching, Mm -hmm. right. And, and, and workshops and, 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 um, uh, you know, sort of, um, people gathering mm-hmm. um, to go deeper um, emotionally and um, uh, group coaching and, 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 and group kind of, kind of like business group therapy sessions, yeah. you know, like re, you know, my old, um, one of my old bosses from Flatiron Partners, Jerry Colonna runs um, uh, Reboot. And um, it's a, a, whole, a coaching organization, and you know the highest form of it is you go off and you uh, go to escape in Montana. You know this was before COVID, um, but it's for the you know the most advanced entrepreneurs you know in Silicon Valley um, to sort of tap into that. And so it's just kind of um, it's going to be really interesting to see um, how we play this next year. Um, and, and what happens when, um, this crew of people, um, maybe outside of Silicon Valley, um, just start to just glom together and what kinds of businesses get made that are, you know, I guess what, I guess what I'm saying is a long winded way of saying is, um, there will be technologies and businesses that get created from, by people that work together remotely And there will be technologies and businesses that are created by people that work together physically. And a couple years out, I'm curious, like what the differences will be and also what technologies they will each use. Right. Right. It almost could be almost like different political parties emerge out of this. You know, we have Republicans and Democrats, but like on some fundamental level, when you think five, 10 years out, um, that the, the, the tools that we use to communicate um, remotely 
And, you know, whether it's Zoom, whether it's Slack, et cetera. We're going to be um, in AR and VR. We were going to have a holiday party. I was with some friends in the industry in um, alt space VR. We just decided we were too tired to <laughs> put on a party. Sure. But it was going to be like this alternative to going to a Zoom party, right? Like we're done with Zoom. Let's go be avatars in virtual space as an attempt to to find a new way. But I think I, the little tiny little bit, I I've been to alt space VR once and it was after IW with IW people. I was like, Oh, this is fun, but it's not as fun as being mm-hmm. together in person, but it's certainly different to be in a little virtual body walking around in virtual space with other virtual bodies um, and having conversations. And I guess I'm saying like, there, then there's like, you know, there's like, the classic example of, of, you know, now we watch basketball, yeah. right? And, and they're in a bubble and you actually watch, you know, 10 players on a court sweating yeah. together. And, 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 and that is more delicious than ever <laughs> to be able to yeah. experience that because it's yeah. rare. You know, you can't have a pickup game Cannot. the way you might have. And so you watch that. Um, is basketball back? And like so it's the new season started. Basketball is already And they're back, back in the bubble? started. Yeah, they're back in their bubble. It's uh, I don't know exactly how the bubbles constituted now, but I'm, I'm they're not all in Florida. I think they're they're in their home cities. So there's some travel. Um, but the other the other example I was going to mention is is sort of these uh, particularly in L.A. hype houses, right? And Taylor Lawrence from the New York Times covers all these. But these TikTok influencer houses where people get together in an Airbnb or some fancy home and they make content together and they cross promote each other. And one of my friends here works with a, a trainer to the TikTok stars where he goes to these houses and he trains them. And, and instead of them paying him, he gets millions of followers. Wow. Right? So the influencer economy um, and Hollywood entertainment in general, you know, profits and benefits f- not from, you know, seven disembodied Zoom windows, but from people physically together. Yeah. You can't fake no. that. Um, it's high bandwidth communication between people in terms of physical modality. Hmm. So, so interesting. My head's at. And you're still, you're on TikTok, right? Ish. Ish. My, my son is, is, my son is doing sports betting content on TikTok. So he's focused on Instagram and TikTok and kind of creating uh, a character called Goldie's Locks where he is every day talking about sports betting, gambling lines on TikTok. Um, and he wants to build his, his own hype house um, around March Madness, um, where people will come together and, and, and live, you know, kind of live this world and, and, and create content and people will tune into that. Um, I've tuned out of TikTok a little bit. Um, I mostly am on Instagram. I just got a new camera, so I'm focused on like higher resolution photography now. I spent a lot of. I'm on Venice Beach. I play a lot of um, paddle tennis now. Um, that's my new what sport. Paddle, paddle tennis. tennis. It's kind of like old man tennis. It's like tennis meets ping pong. So it's on a smaller court with a deflated ball and a thicker racket. <laughs> okay. And um, it's right by Muscle Beach, and it's great. And I'm learning how to surf. I'm trying to surf. And I'm looking at the skate parks and, um, you know, I'm, I'm, it's all, you know, the, yes, there's shelter in place and there's no outdoor dining, but you know, it's fascinating and energizing for me to be outside in the sun, watching people on the boardwalk of all stripes and colors and all different sizes and colors and ethnicities and, and, and different social strata, um, just going about their yeah. life. Um, it's very life affirming. And that's kind of why I keep thinking about um, what, um, what kind of forms um, of collaboration and community are going to be created and established, you know, maybe not in a month, but in six months. And so what can we do now to anticipate that? And then how do these issues around, you know, privacy and surveillance and anonymity play into that? Well, it's going to be a really interesting 2021. And we are um, really thrilled that we've had all of you listening. Um, 
actually, I would love our listening audience to to write us and tell us what they'd like us to cover this coming year. Um, are there, you know, books we should, authors we should be bringing on or um, key topics we should be inviting experts to share with all of you? We'd love to know more about, um, you know, get your, your input. Yeah, I would love and maybe once a month to have a kind of a book author and review and, you know, starting next week, uh, we have uh, Carissa Velas, uh, who wrote a great book called Privacy is Power, Why and How You Should Take Back Control of Your Data. She will be on our show next Wednesday. Um, and if you are out there listening, um, go to PSA Today Podcast, psatodaypodcast.com, and check it out and drop us a note. Uh, we also have PSA Today One on Twitter is our handle. And... Um, I think we're, you know, we're looking forward to next year. We're going to have um, more content, more speakers. Um, you know, it's our 27th episode. I appreciate you, Kalia. This has been a good ride. Good I turn. appreciate you too, Seth. This is really fun. And for folks who are um, particularly interested in the digital identity work that I do, I've actually started a once a week newsletter where we go through and summarize uh, the latest news coming out of the SSI and broader identity communities. So you can find that at uh, dentosphere.net um, and identosphere.substack.com. I think we're changing the URL. I think it'll, anyways, but we're on Substack. That's where we publish from. So we'll put a link in the show notes, but that that's that's been really fun. I've been working with a colleague, InfoMiner, um, on really synthesizing what what's coming off the coming out of the industry every week. Fantastic! I will put the uh, we'll put the link to Identisphere uh, as well, um, and some of these links to the books um, in the uh, show notes for yeah. today. Great! Thank, Thank you, Sam. Okay, so for PSA today, number twenty seven. Uh, this is Seth and Kalia. It is Wednesday, December 16th, and we will see you next week. Bye. Goodbye.